Let's see. So, okay. Sorry I'm starting three minutes late. Four minutes late now. Uh, thanks for coming back. And I wanted to talk through some of what might have been happening in your brain while I did that. Including wandering all over the place. That's okay. Kind of normal. Um, you're here. Okay, great. So I'll, I'll move through this piece fairly briskly. Just to remind you, uh, if you want to get the slides, just give me your name and email address. Please, please print neatly. And then, thanks. Also, I have a lot of other background information on my website about this more neurological material I'm about to get into. Uh, there will be no midterm. Fear not. <laughs> We're okay. And uh, you can come back to it again and again. Uh, uh, okay, good. So, first off, setting an intention. Uh, one way to do that is sort of top-down. feels more executive, kind of like there's a chair of the inner mental committee who says, pay attention, stay steady. Uh, that tends, those, the circuitry that enables that to simplify dynamic interdependent processes, mainly located behind the forehead, prefrontal regions, site of executive, top-down regulation. Uh, on the other hand, a perhaps more important and often overlooked way of establishing intention is more from the bottom up, in which we get a felt sense of, what it, of the realization of what we intend, of what it would be like to be that way already, ah, and then give ourselves over to it kind of like a river that's carrying us along. That tends to draw on more bottom-up, nonverbal, sensate, emotional uh, parts of the brain, as it were, uh, parts of the brain that do that kind of thing in the subcortex, the amygdala, hippocampus, basal ganglia, and the brainstem regions that release neurotransmitters that help us get a feeling of what it would be like to, let's say, have steadiness of mind. Or what it would be like to be patient with our teenagers. Or uh, more patient even with ourselves. What would that be like? What would it be like to be motivated more for sobriety? Or exercise? Or changing health practices in some way? And then giving ourselves over to that. Also, possibly, and to me plausibly, a key part of the brain that is getting more scientific attention could also be involved the cerebellum. It's interesting. The cerebellum, we tend to not think about it. It's been considered to be just involved with things like balance and motor function. But actually, about 80%, maybe more, of the neurons in our brains are in the cerebellum. We have about 80, 90 billion neurons in our head with another 80, 90, 100 billion support cells, glial cells. And of the neurons, which are kind of where most of the action is for information processing in the brain, um, uh, those are mainly located in the cerebellum and most of the connections, the synapses, each one of which is like a little microprocessor. Uh, neurons on average make several thousand connections with each other. That means we've got several hundred trillion little microprocessors inside our heads. Like most of them are in the cerebellum. And a lot of what it does is form expectations or anticipations uh, of, of a plan or an action or a way of being against which the brain compares what, real, what actually happens. 
So if we're imagining or anticipating a way of being that we want to give ourselves over to as a form of setting an intention, it's quite possible that the cerebellum is involved in that. And it's a major area of new study. Okay? And and I think historically intention has been mainly constructed in a kind of, I think, overly intellectual, maybe it's not a coincidence that most people doing that were men uh, in psychology and philosophy, top down, you know, top is good, bottom is bad, right? Heaven's good, earth is bad. Uh, And I think it's important to really appreciate the power and the primacy of bottom-up forms of values and uh, intentions and aims. And, okay. Relaxation, really important. If we're um, edgy and revved up, attention naturally is vigilant and scattered. And, you know, or if we want to steady, it's helpful to ease and calm the body. I think it's useful to uh, find words that work for you. Sometimes the instruction to relax could be a prelude to mistreatment. So uh, I think it's important to be willing to use other words like easing or centering or calming. Calm strength. Uh, There are many ways to relax. Uh, Relaxation or easing, tranquilizing the body, as the Buddha put it, uh, tends to involve the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system, of the autonomic nervous system. The parasympathetic wing is the most ancient and primal of the uh, elements of the autonomic nervous system. And it's the natural counter to the sympathetic wing of the nervous system, which which is involved with fighting, fleeing, and fleeing. It's the stress response, you know, part of the nervous system. You know, run from the threat, chase the opportunity. Sympathetic nervous system. They're connected like on a seesaw. When one goes up, the other goes down. So as we increase activation of the parasympathetic wing, such as through exhaling and exhaling at length, because it's naturally involved with exhaling, during which time the heart rate slows, it being the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system, that tends to downregulate the stress response, which helps us have greater steadiness of mind. Okay? Warming the heart, um, good for lots of reasons. Uh, the, uh, when I, the general sense of warming the heart, finding friendliness, finding compassion, kindness, feeling loved, feeling loving, resting in, kind of bobbing up and down in a sea of love, however you experience that, that does a lot of good things for us in general, including for steadying the mind. One way that happens is that these experiences of warm-heartedness engage very much what's called the... Uh, vagus nerve complex. You may have heard of Stephen Porges' polyvagal theory. It's this basic notion that this really important um, nerve complex that's part of, the, in effect, the autonomic nervous system has two major branches. The first branch originates in the brainstem and goes downward. It's very involved with parasympathetic regulation of the viscera, especially the heart and the lungs. Calming and stabilizing. If it gets overactive, we might go into a freeze response, kind of the human equivalent of an animal playing dead. And that can also feel like uh, forms of dissociation or spacing out or just not being able to be here anymore, which is a natural and very primal response to trauma. So it's not that the parasympathetic 
branch is good and the sympathetic branch is bad, uh, too much parasympathetic activation moves into immobilization and freezing in, in terror or panic. On the other hand, the sympathetic nervous system, when combined with positive emotion, is the basis of enthusiasm and healthy, healthy passion. There's nothing wrong with the sympathetic wing of the nervous system. Uh, the, the key is uh, balance and the presence of other things in mind, especially emotion, uh, being uh, positive or negative in a general sense. So, most ancient branch of the vagus nerve complex is, goes downward, it's regulatory, it's kind of calming. The second major recent branch goes up into the face and it's a major part of what's called the social engagement system. And vagus nerves, uh, vagus nerve complex, 11th cranial nerve, I think, moves into the face. We have the most expressive eyes of any animal on the planet. Vagus nerve gets involved with um, certain aspects of hearing in the middle ear, being able to track soothing tones. Aww. Right? And uh, so that aspect of the vagus nerve complex also gets involved with empathy for others and heartfeltness, oxytocin activity. The two branches are connected. So as we work the lower branch, as it were, through deliberately calming, that makes us more available for relationship because its activation ripples upward. On the other hand, as we warm the heart and draw in healthy, wholesome ways ourselves into a feeling of lovingness, that sends activation downward and calms the visceral core in a lovely way that helps us steady the mind. Okay? And by the way, like so many things, it's more complex than that, but I'm just trying to cut to the chase here. Okay? Safety, really important. Safety is so interesting because arguably it's our most fundamental need in the wild. Eat lunch today. Don't be lunch today. Okay. <laughs> Live to see the sunrise. Safety tends to trump other needs. You know, So it's t- safety first and foremost. Um, and um, uh, animals back in the day, nervous system's been evolving for 600 million years. Animals back in the day that were super chill. Yo, I'm just fine. Everything's really cool. <laughs> they got eaten. You know, the ones that survived were paranoid, nervous, and cranky. <laughs> and we're their great-grandchildren with nuclear weapons on top of the food chain. Great! So, it's normal to be nervous. And if you have any kind of life history that pounds on you, it's really normal to be anxious, worried, vigilant, uneasy. So it's really important to find authentic ways to feel as safe as you can. You know, tracking threats around you. It's useful to appreciate that we can be um, threatened. There could be hazards around us while having a real sense of calm strength inside, in our core. I've done a ton of rock climbing. I've been in many situations standing on little edges, the width of a pencil or a pencil lead. The wind's whistling. You know, my heart's pounding. And I'm having the time of my life. Because I knew what I was doing. I had a rope on. Uh, none of this free solo stuff. And, uh, uh, and I knew my friend was paying attention, at least most of the time. So I felt pretty good, right? So just because we're threatened, doesn't mean we need to feel terrified or enraged or frozen. Really important. Similarly, just because there's opportunity doesn't necessarily mean we have to be driven or addicted to it. Just because there's a relationship, uh, issue even, conflict perhaps, doesn't mean that we need to let hate uh, or 
uh, shame invade our minds. All right. So um, related to safety, if we're feeling unsafe, it's hard to be steady. It's hard to focus. There's a lot of traditional advice to find a place of safety, of seclusion, and to practice there. Uh, if you think of the metaphor, at least, if not the actuality of the Buddha awakening at the base of the Bodhi tree, the Bodhi tree had his back so that the threats that challenged him in his night of awakening had to come at him from the front so he could deal with them. Safety is really fundamental. So helping yourself release unnecessary anxiety is, I think, a lifelong practice. I'm still engaged with it myself. Uh, It's useful to appreciate, you know, in this moment, I don't have to be this guarded. I don't have to be so braced. This uneasiness is not helping me. I, I can rationally recognize my threats. I'm coping in this moment. Yes, something, a comet might strike planet Earth. You know, the sun might have literally blown up four minutes ago because it takes light eight minutes to get here. We don't know it yet. Don't worry, it'll be a long time before that happens. We'll, we'll have plenty of early stage warnings. We have a really mellow star. Um, but you just don't know. Okay, fine. And still in this moment, it's okay. It's basically all right. Basically all right now and now and now. All right, safety. It's interesting to observe, as I mentioned, there can be a fear of not being afraid because when we're not afraid, we lower our guard and that's when they get us. So it's helpful to recognize that might have been true then. Is it still true today? And in this chair, in this moment, on this walk, driving this car, can I calm and settle? And then helping yourself do that. Which helps attention then come in instead of being vigilant out there on the walls of the castle looking for invaders. And that supports steadiness of mind. And has a lot of other benefits too. Uh, When I was training to be a therapist, um, my supervisor once said that much as in criminal investigations they say follow the money, in clinical practice or personal growth, follow anxiety. Follow the trail of anxiety. You know, don't underestimate its, its power. Really useful in practice. And then last, positive emotion. Uh, let's see, many ways to open to authentically always, uh, not pushing it faster than is real. Positive emotion like gratitude or gladness, lovingness, peacefulness, basic well-being. Sometimes that's not possible. By the way, uh, as I warned you, in this practice we did, it's, it's about kind of exploring different factors in the mind, trying to get something going. Uh, if we can't get something going, uh, sometimes it just wasn't our day. It was like trying to light a fire with wet wood. No big deal. Often, though, if we can't at will mobilize a, a reasonable kind of normal range experience like calming or feeling loving or positive emotion. That's a flag that says either, whoa, I could develop that more. I could develop that increasingly as a trait that's stable in me. Or it might be a flag, huh, maybe there's something going on in my history, maybe in my health that's smothering that state of being that I could otherwise self-generate. Being able to self-generate experiences is a really fundamental aspect of coping and healing 
And so if we're not able to self-generate something that kind of seems within range, you know, we're not talking about enlightenment on demand. I just mean normal range like gratitude or feeling friendly. Then hmm, that, that's, that's worth looking into even more. That's worth looking into. Okay? So with regard to positive emotion, one of the really neat things it does for steadiness of mind, we'll take a little explanation, but it will illustrate a broader point. And it's really, I think, kind of cool. So... Um, if we feel, let's say, grateful or uh, happy or contented, this, these are, in traditional Buddhist terms, uh, some of the factors of deep, non-ordinary states of concentration and meditative absorption. And in that early tradition of Buddhism, there was a lot of ascetic practice, a lot of renunciation, a lot of willingness to just be very uncomfortable. Yet in that context, there was a real emphasis on happiness and even bliss as factors of concentration. And I'll talk more about this. So why would that be? Why might it be that that happiness or authentic well-being, especially as it pervades the mind, could stabilize attention and help us be steady? So one reason for that has to do with what's called working memory. And if you think about it, if we're going to lock on to, let's say, the sensations of breathing in the chest or at the upper lip, or lock on to a feeling of gratitude, or a phrase that we're repeating in our mind, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, something. If we're dropped onto something, that means that it remains stable in the neural substrates of working memory which basically represent the experience in any moment that's in the foreground of consciousness, working memory. Kind of like RAM, R-A-M, random access memory, in a computer. I'm doing this gesture because the neural substrates of working memory tend to be in the upper outer frontal regions of the cortex. Okay, They're like, in effect, I think of them as metaphorically as like a little pasture, because my dad grew up in a ranch in North Dakota. Or you could think of them as like a little chalkboard or whiteboard, a little, little bucket, right? working memory. So the question becomes, how do we keep the gate closed to those little pastures of working memory? So the sweet little critters that we're focusing on, breathing, loving, what have you, stay there. Huh? The gate to the little pasture, fenced off pasture as it were, I'm going to go with this metaphor, uh, is regulated by dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter system. It tracks rewards and expectations of rewards. All right. When the stream of dopamine is steady on continuing sense of reward, the gate stays closed. Makes sense. We keep paying attention to what is rewarding, what's enjoyable or meaningful, including pleasurable. On the other hand, when the rewards drop, the sense of reward drops. Eh, meh, not getting much out of this. You know, boom, the gate opens and new stimuli can flood in because that's a new opportunity, something new to pay attention to, a new issue, right? Makes sense? Also, when there's a big potential reward coming our way, whoa, 
the gate opens as well. When there's a spike of dopamine, with the expectation of a big reward, because, whoa, that's a new great opportunity. Here's a metaphor. I think last name is Cohen, a neuroscientist at Princeton who came up with this material in, in his research. Imagine that you're an ancient monkey in a tree. One of our great-great-great-great-grandparents hanging out in the tree, eating bananas, I suppose. And so, steady stream of reward. This is going fine. I'm focused on this tree. On the other hand, the bananas run out in this tree. Rewards drop. I start looking around for other trees. Makes sense? On the other hand, here I am in this tree, eating my bananas, steady stream, nice moderate stream of reward all good and then a really cute monkey swings onto a branch nearby well forget the bananas how are you doing (laughs) new opportunity right so a spike of potential dope of dopamine potential reward gate opens new things come in how might this relate to positive emotion if we're experiencing if we're kind of marinating in happiness or or contentment or or even subtle forms of positive emotion like tranquility a beautiful peacefulness and it's pervading the mind. The reward stream is steady. That's good. Also, if it's intense, if it's luscious, if we're really given over to it, if it even becomes almost blissful, the reward stream is so intense from the dopamine that it's at the top of its range, and you can't get a spike. That keeps the gate closed as well. In this way, happiness is skillful means. Isn't that cool? A simple little mechanism. It's more complex than that, of course. And it's a really cool little mechanism. And one of the things that, in my own journey, I started meditating in 1974. Badly, most of the time. But I've learned a few things along the way. One of the major kind of breakthroughs for me was when I was guided by a teacher of mine, uh, Christina Feldman, to focus more on positive emotion as a skillful means for contemplative practice. Okay. Okay, good. All right? Kind of neat, huh? This illustrates a broader point that I want to move through now. That much as we can be mindful of the body, objectively, we're actually body full of mind. So are you okay? Can I move on? Come on, just move through this didactic stuff and we can get into more practice too. And I'll open it up for questions as well. We'll definitely have lunch eventually. All right. Body full of mind. So we'll lay a little framework out here. So, to me it's respectful and it anticipates natural questions to address the mind-body relationship. Classic question from Descartes and others. This is the framework I'm going to work in. First, experiences are happening. We're hearing, we're seeing, we're tasting, touching, we're wanting, we're remembering, we're imagining. Experiences are clearly occurring. That's where we start. There is phenomenology. There is experience. From our experience, we infer that there seems to be matter. Rocks, water, bodies, brains, stars, squirrels, all kinds of wild stuff. Right? Matter. Information also seems to exist meanings, signals, instructions, programs of various kinds. 
And information is represented by matter. Information. Sounds kind of abstract. We have many familiar examples. You drive along, come to an intersection, traffic light is there, green, fine, turns yellow, turns to red. The the electromagnetic spectrum of those colors, green, yellow, red, that's matter, since energy and matter are two aspects of one thing. Um, But the meaning of green, yellow, and red is information. It's represented by something material. Information itself is immaterial. It exists, but it's not tangible. You can't weigh a meaning or an instruction or a signal. But it exists. So we have these two meaningfully distinct, categorically distinct aspects of reality. Matter exists and information exists. And the function of the nervous system is to process information. That's where it evolved to exchange information initially between the sensing systems and the motor systems of ancient creatures in the primordial seas 600 million years ago who had gotten complicated enough that their motor systems needed to send information to their sensing systems and vice versa. Smells good, swim forward. Tastes horrible, swim away. Right? Information. Last, experiences seem to be enabled by information processing in the nervous system. Because without that information processing of the nervous system, we don't seem able to have experiences. And other non-human animals also don't seem able to have experiences. As the brain changes, the mind changes. Mind being the realm of experience. Okay. And it's probably more, there may be more to it than this. This is a framework. All right? You okay so far? Just kind of want to lay this out, anticipate natural questions. For me, this is a very clear way to think about this stuff. All right? Okay, great. Personally, I'm a theist. I think there is, actually, as the Buddha taught, something transcendental, something meaningfully distinct that said, whoop, For our purposes here, I'm going to stay inside the natural frame in which um, our experiences are mainly, if not entirely, uh, made by the brain, made by the body, really more broadly, made by the body as a whole, entwined with life, entwined with culture. The final common pathway of all the causes flowing through us to make this moment and this one of experience, as best we can tell, travel right between our ears. So based on that, we can do some cool things. So here we go. This is your brain. No, it's really not your brain. It's a brain. It's a real brain. doesn't look like much. Three pounds of tofu-like tissue. It looks like a rotten cauliflower. Uh, scientists generally consider it to be certainly the most complex object in our solar system, if not maybe large pieces of the universe. Uh, as I said, you know, ballpark estimates of varied recent refined estimates place the number of cells in the brain at approaching 200 billion or so. Uh, neurons, like I said, 80, 90, maybe 100 billion, making um, all told prop on the order of several hundred trillion connections with each other. Really extraordinary extraordinary complex system. Uh, 
if we're going to have experiences, mental activity, that entails neural activity. The two correlate, they co-arise, they're associated with each other. For example, in this slide, this is a meditator who's really concentrating on boundless compassion for all beings inside an MRI. You know, claustrophobic and loud. I've had MRIs. And um, a part of this person's brain uh, and meditators in general that are concentrating is shown in the orange blob here as the um, uh, anterior, which means frontal cingulate. Um, there we go. You probably can't see it. The orange blob. All right? We have the new science of blobology. Anyway, and so that's part of the brain that's involved with top-down executive regulation of attention. You know, establish a goal and then do error monitoring, error checking. Am I deviating from the goal? Whoops, mind's wandering. Bring it back. Keep it there. Okay, doing well. On target, on target, off target. Come back. The anterior, the frontal, cingulate cortex. The point here I'm just using is that there's an association between what the mind is doing and what the brain is doing. The two correlate. They go together. The words at the top, ardent, resolute, diligent, and mindful, uh, are a recurring description from the Buddha about how uh, we should be. You know, an honorable, sincere practitioner is one who is ardent, heartfelt, enthusiastic, courageous. Pretty cool. Ardent, resolute, diligent, and mindful. Okay? So then we go to the next step of this. Repeated mental activity entails repeated neural activity. Repeated neural activity builds neural structure and changes neural function. This is the process of learning, broadly defined, which includes negative learning, becoming more anxious, becoming more irritable, becoming more addicted, as well as becoming more resilient, becoming happier, becoming wiser, becoming more loving. There are many examples of this. The fundamental process is kind of summarized in the saying from the work of the Canadian Donald Hebb. He actually never wrote this himself, but it's related to his work. Neurons that fire together, wire together. So we have a two-stage process. We have the firing which is associated with the mental activity that's occurring at the time, the experiencing, including sensing, feeling, remembering, imagining, intuiting, even very <coughs> profound spiritual experiences that are occurring. Um, those neurons are firing together that enable that experience. And as they repeatedly fire together, they tend to wire together as well. They tend to form uh, physical changes based on the experiences that the animal, including us, is having. There are many mechanisms of neuroplasticity. You do not need to remember anything on this list. It's in the slides. I'm just listing it here because there are a lot of them. Neuroplasticity is not breaking news. It's been understood, going back to Aristotle, that as we learn to walk instead of crawl, or learn how to be more patient or skillful with the in-laws, or what have you, uh, something has to change in the body for that to occur, most likely inside the brain. The breaking news about neuroplasticity in the last 10, 20 years is how extensive it is, and how uh, quick it is, and how many mechanisms are involved in it. And I've listed some of the major mechanisms here. Uh, you know, existing connections change. That's where functional changes of existing connections. New connections grow. 
genes are expressed in different ways. For example, people who repeatedly practice relaxation have improved expression of genes inside their neurons uh, that help them calm down when they're getting stressed, which then helps them be more resilient. Interesting. And there are a number of other mechanisms listed here as well. Kind of the takeaway point is, on the one hand, to appreciate how um, if we sort of marinate in negative experiences, that's going to change our brain. In part, turbocharged by what's called the brain's negativity bias. I say it's like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. And one of my own personal takeaways from this material has been to be much more attentive about just marinating in crud. Think about it as you must. You know, feel the feelings first and foremost for sure. But after we have felt them for a while and there's no more gain in the pain, why keep marinating in the wound? Right? Uh, And what I mean by marinating, I mean being identified with it rather than stepping back from it and it's just there. As soon as we disidentify from the experience or step back from it with mindfulness, then we stop reinforcing it. But it's when we're feeding or allying with those inner voices, that's when we reinforce them and the brain is very, very vulnerable to uh, learning from negative experiences, especially in childhood. So that's one takeaway. Um, Sokni Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher, apparently had a saying. He said, think the same thought again and again, that's fine. But ten is enough. (laughs) Okay. The other huge takeaway for me is to really appreciate the transition from state to trade. Experiencing does not equal learning. Many of us, me included, have wholesome, beneficial, useful thoughts, feelings, sensations, intentions. In the moment, they're good. They're, They're good. But they wash through us like water through a sieve with no lasting benefit. If there's no physical change left in the body, then by definition there's no learning. There's no development. There's no healing. We might move from state to state to state to state in what are sometimes called upward spirals. Those are nice. But if their causes change, the whole lovely little whirlwind ends. On the other hand, if we help ourselves develop traits through cultivation, that third of the three-legged stool of practice through cultivation, if we help states become traits, then over time we gradually hardwire into ourselves factors of resilient well-being. So that even as the waves of life slam into us pretty hard, in the core of our being we retain a fundamental peacefulness, contentment, and love. Or we recover to that baseline rapidly. That's a great opportunity for us. That's the second big takeaway. To really appreciate that it takes typically at least a few seconds, if not longer, to help our experiences start leaving lasting traces behind. And if you want three kind of, I've written a whole book about this called Hardwiring Happiness, but if you want kind of like the three, take three things you can easily do or tell other people they can do, any one of which works, and all three together are really good, when you're having an experience that you want to help it land, and it could well be, whoa, I need to go down a different road next time I'm talking with my daughter, or something like that, you know, or a friend, um, or whatever it is you want to help sink in, like you're getting calmer or quieter as you practice, 
or there was a real takeaway for you listening to this talk or doing a session with a therapist. Oh, I want to really help that sink in. Um, First, stay with it for a breath or longer. Keep those neurons firing together. It's really interesting how rapidly we bounce off of pleasurable, wholesome, useful experiences. Boom, on to the next thing. Or we let other people rain on our parade. No, 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 no. Keep that song playing in the inner iPod so it has a chance to record a little bit. All right? Stay with it for a breath or longer. Second suggestion about this, try to feel it in the body. The more pervasively those neurons are firing together, the more they're going to tend to wire together. Open to it experientially. As Samuel Bonder, my friend, puts it, we need to wake down, not just wake up. Come into the body. I landed in adulthood, numb from the chin down. You know, I needed to learn to really integrate and include the body. Um, and so try to, try to feel it in the body as much as possible. That will also increase neuroplastic change. It'll tend to increase experience after experience after experience. Uh, the, 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 the lasting residues of the experience is changes of neural structure and function. We're not trying to remember the episode particularly. We're trying to help the residues sink in and shift us gradually over time into who we'd like to become. Calmer, happier, stronger, healed, less shadowed, by the impact of our previous life experiences, more at peace. And the third thing that's a really useful way to help experiences be internalized is to focus on what's rewarding about them. Going back to dopamine, as I said earlier, in a different way, as we focus on what's rewarding about experiences, in other words, what's meaningful or enjoyable, or both about them, what's rewarding about them, naturally uh, activity increases in the brain of two neurotransmitter systems, dopamine and norepinephrine. Uh, Norepinephrine is involved with sort of orienting and alerting. This matters. Pay attention. As dopamine and norepinephrine activity increase in the brain, the experiences we're having at the time, which is to say they're neural patterning that's correlated with them is flagged as a keeper for priority protection during long-term consolidation into storage. Right? We remember, we take into ourselves that which is rewarding. So focusing on what's meaningful or rewarding about whatever we want to take in is another way to increase this impact. Stay with it for a breath or longer. Feel it in the body. Focus on what's rewarding about it. Those are three key things to do to help yourself whoop, have a steeper growth curve, steeper healing curve, steeper learning curve as you move through each day. Okay. Good. You got it, right? This, you're, you're solid. Everything's working great. Just reassure me. Yeah, Rick, it's cool. Shut up. We're going to keep going. All right, good. So here's a slide that shows an example of lasting neuroplastic change in the brain of long-term meditators. There are many other examples of the ways that our experiences change the brain. And based on that understanding, we can be skillful in various ways. This was a study from Sarah Lazar and her colleagues at Harvard about 10 years ago, or a little more actually. Um, She compared long-term meditators to matched controls, people who didn't meditate but were the same age, or socioeconomic status, gender, and so forth. What she observed by comparison is that long-term meditators had measurably thicker cortex 
the uh, kind of outer layer mainly of the brain where most of the action is for information processing, thus experiencing. She found that in three regions, the meditators had thicker tissue. They worked those muscles, so they got bigger in effect, metaphorically. First region is the insula on the inside of the temporal lobes. Uh, this is a blobby brain that's like a beach ball that's normally all kind of, you know, furrowed and bent, but blown up and out. That's kind of the way they represent it here. Takeaway point is, the insula is a really important part of the brain for self-awareness, for knowing ourselves, especially knowing our bodies. Interoception, as well as gut feelings, and the deep kind of background wallpaper sense of what it's like to be me. Insula is very involved in that. Well, when you meditate, especially these were mainly mindfulness meditators, present moment awareness, staying in touch with the breath, internal sensations of breathing a lot, um, they worked that muscle. They repeatedly got neurons firing there, so they started wiring together. Insula. Region number two, executive regions behind the forehead. I referred to them previously. Top-down executive control of attention. You know, they regulated their attention again and again and again. And they worked that muscle and tissue grew there. More connections formed and more blood flowed to those parts of the brain, making those areas thicker. Third region, a little benefit, somatosensory cortex on the top of the brain because they were tuning into their bodies. This is a cool slide. It just demonstrates the results. Uh, the scatter plot on the bottom has to do with the fact that we normally lose... Um, brain cells every day to natural cell death as we age, some are reborn, some are born in the brain every day through what's called neurogenesis uh, in one particular region, mainly the hippocampus. But uh, on the whole, this, it's, it's downhill. I'm sorry. It's just <laughs> decrepitude eventually. But no. So in this process, this called normal cortical thinning Due to aging is associated with normal cognitive decline, not dementia, no worries, but, you know, walking into a room and forgetting why you walked into that room to do something or issues with word finding or where are my car keys, uh, etc. Well, interestingly, the blue circle meditators, and there were more subjects in the study than you can see in the scatter plot. Um, let's see, and the thickness is having to do with these regions, Okay. In millimeters, the cortex is a sheet that's like four to six millimeters-ish thick. That doesn't sound like much, but check this out. A typical neuron has a cell body with a lot of little wires sticking out of it that make connections with other little wires. Take a single hair. You could put roughly typical neuron five cell bodies side to side, the cell body, the thick part, in the width of a single hair pretty small. You could put roughly 5,000 synapses, the junctions, the little microprocessor junction between neurons in the width of a single hair. Several thousand in the width of a hair. So in a cubic millimeter, you can pack a lot of information processing power. So an increase of thickness of just a little bit is actually consequential. And as other studies have shown, as we build up structure and function in different parts of the brain, we become more capable uh, to do what that part of the brain does. All right. Well, the red square non-meditators, 
they experienced and demonstrated normal cortical thinning in these three key regions. In other words, the older red square non-meditators had thinner cortical tissue in these three key regions than the younger non-meditators or younger meditators. Normal process. No big news there. But, oh, the blue circle meditators. Those old dogs had learned some new tricks. They had been meditating for a while, typically, and they had preserved cortical thickness in those three key regions compared to the younger meditators and the younger matched controls. They kept using it, so they tended not to lose it which has lots of implications for everybody, including an aging population. At this point, people naturally ask, oh my gosh, is it too late? Or something like that. Very understandable question, okay? Makes total sense. Uh, It's not too late. Uh, What's really interesting is that neuroplastic can change throughout the lifespan. There's certain times when it tends to be supercharged, like early childhood and also adolescence. That said, as we get older, we learn how to learn. Potentially. And we developed some wisdom about helping ourselves heal and grow. So actually we have some advantages in terms of um, having a nice steep learning curve. The key is practice. And uh, frankly, there's a dosing effect. More is better. Uh, but as I told our son one time who was deciding whether or not to do any homework at all, I said, Forrest, one is infinitely more than zero. Which is true. Something is infinitely more than anything. And for many people, uh, a breakthrough commitment, which I invite you all into, is to commit to doing something contemplative, something meditative that works for you, whatever that is that's real, a minute or more a day. But every day. It might be the last minute before you put your head on the pillow, but it's a legitimate minute every day, whatever that might be for real. I'm sorry, playing World of Warcraft does not count. It may have other benefits, but it doesn't count. Uh, Walking the dog might count if you can really do it steadily, you know, a minute or more a day. And uh, the minutes add up, as I quoted already. If you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. All right? Okay. I'm going to just mention this slide in passing. You can look at it later. This is a quick summary of some of the major research findings of the ways in which regular meditative practice, steadiness of mind practice, changes the brain for the better. There are other studies that show that other kinds of practice, uh, like gratitude practice or relaxation practice or other forms of training, uh, yoga, uh, other kinds of things, can also change the brain for the better. Uh, I'm not saying meditation is the only way to change the brain for the better, but it is kind of sort of at the center of our topic today. Okay, up here. Takeaway point, we can use the mind to change the brain, to change the mind for the better, for our own sake and that of other beings. That is a very cool opportunity. Okay. Questions or comments so far? All right. Right in the front in a second, they'll bring you a mic. Okay, great. You want to keep your hand up? They'll bring you the mic. Thanks a lot. Um, I was curious when you said uh, that personally I'm a a theist. And I was curious what um, 
what all this science has to say about the difference between uh, theism and atheism or non-theism and in terms of creating positive emotion, blah, 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 in terms of embracing hopelessness and groundlessness, blah, 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 you know. I know, it's really funny. It's like a can of worms, right? I I try to contain it, but the worms keep crawling out because it's the coolest question, you know, right? Yeah. So, okay. First, simply taken as experiences, religious experiences, spiritual experiences broadly, uh, can be studied and regarded and pragmatically appreciated without necessarily presuming that there is indeed a transcendental. Right? So far? So, for example, the American Psychological Association, which is a scientific organization, has a division that's interested in transpersonal psychology and actually is almost a statement of policy in the last certainly 10, 20 years has appreciated that for many, many people, a major source of resilience and well-being is their spiritual life of some kind or their religious life. So even if the therapist so-called doesn't, is not a believer themselves, they can work with that as uh, something that's meaningful and important for a person right off the top. And I've known many people for whom this is just not relevant at all. And if anything, it's a charged topic, potentially, sometimes due to experiences they had as a kid, having stuff, you know, shoved on them. So, I find myself as someone who, I live in this world, is to be able to respect and just kind of relate to where a person is coming from and then take it from there. Uh, Second, people try to study things like What's the difference in the brain between meditating on the breath or praying to the divine, to God? It's tough to see much of a difference in the brain between the two. I think sometimes people make category errors. They they conflate things that are actually distinct when they look for proofs of the transcendental inside the natural. they're, They're different domains. Or they look for disproves like whoa you know you don't need god to account for the earth going around the sun or all the species so therefore that's proof that there's no god well that's a category error uh as i say a truly scientific attitude is that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence so there's a lot of murky and often dogmatic talk on both sides of this material i find it's helpful to kind of be real clear about it and then this is the last thing I would say is that um, I think it's just it's minimally it's a scientifically observable fact that might mean more that for many many people a sense of or a belief in that which is in some meaningful way distinct from the natural frame of ordinary amazing stuff like quarks and black holes and the Golden State Warriors. (laughs) You know, (laughs) 
is actually deeply important to them. And uh, for those of you that you know have a minimally an interest in Buddhist practice, it's crystal clear that the Buddha referred routinely to that which is transcendental. And he described very directly a path leading to a radically transformative, and here's where words break down in the intersection between the natural and the transcendental, a radically transformative encounter with unconditionality. And whether he was right or not, that's another matter. But I don't think it's disputable that he did not teach that and make the ultimate engagement with that which is transcendental an important part of practice. That I think has gotten watered down a lot in the West. and People have been uncomfortable about facing that. But it's all throughout the Dharma, this process of realizing that conditioned phenomena are an unreliable basis for the most profound and lasting happiness because conditioned phenomena change. Right? So he searched for that which was unconditioned. And as he said many times, uh, essentially, see for yourself. Take nothing on faith alone. You know, see for yourself what your experience is. But he, he really taught in that direction. And meanwhile, we have our work cut out. <laughs> It's a progressive process. And I'll just finish on this point. I've taken hundreds of people rock climbing in different workshops and things. And often uh, someone who's beginning will be kind of frozen in this position. They'll have their, you know, their foot on one hold, foot on another hold, hands on two holds. They're solid and they don't know what to do. Understandably, because they can't reach anything. And yet, if they just stepped up, if they took the step that's in front of them, the next hold would come within reach. And very often that's all we need to do. Just the next breath, the next moment, the next practice, the next conversation, the next step, the next opening into in our own journey. What's the next step? Take that next step. And as a teacher said to me a long time ago, two words that I've never forgotten, keep going. Okay, maybe one more question and then scoot along to a practice here. Great. Okay, um, so all of the information that you presented in this section is just wonderful. And my well, why don't you just stop right there? Uh-huh. <laughs> no, 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 no. We need to keep going and get another step forward. So, um, so my brain was really trying to calculate all of that and put that in perspective of an experience that I had um, actually last year. Uh, because I'd gotten more mindful and more um, disciplined, if you will, of looking at certain issues in myself. And so um, it was like a daily event. And one day I had an insight, and it was just, it was incredible. And so here I am, joyful, I'm thinking about it, I'm carrying the joy every day, I'm grateful. And I'm still doing the same things I was doing before I had the insight. So it was like practicing or building on it or whatever. And then all of a sudden, like after three weeks, boom, it was gone. It disappeared. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, what, what happened? Yeah. And so I knew I'd been looking at the same stuff and I just did not know what to do to get back to that space. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
about three or four months later, I had another insight, not quite as the big boom of that one. And that one lasted for a couple of weeks, and then it disappeared. Yeah. And so I'm looking at everything you said, and I think, I think yeah, I think that I'm on to something with this, but I don't really know how to put it together in this scenario. Yeah. So do you have any hints or tips? Yeah. That's great. Thank you for saying all that. And you're naming a classic, I think, universal matter, right? Um, and uh, there's a teaching from a, one of the early Tibetan masters who, by all accounts, became fully enlightened. And he said that, describing his own life of practice, and you could relate this to a life of practice or to a particular thing we're developing. He said, in the beginning, nothing came. In the middle, nothing stayed. In the end, nothing left. It's great. The Tibetans have some of the best sayings. Also, Alcoholics Anonymous, that's another source of great sayings, in my experience. You know, anyway, so, and, and another saying is gradual cultivation, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, sudden awakening, you know, or sudden awakening, but then we have to backfill. We have to cultivate and establish. And then there's another awakening and then we have to backfill and kind of fill in, right? And sometimes people have awakenings uh, that are incredible. Sometimes, you know, drug-assisted, but they can't stabilize. They're not there. Uh, you got to... So for me, it's a general process. And so what... It's a universal one. That's a really good thing to appreciate. So the question then becomes... How do we help things, how do we help ourselves progress down that path, right? As happily and efficiently, you know, productively as possible. Uh, and that, how do we pragmatically help things really sink in? That's been my professional focus in a lot of ways, in particular interest, cultivation, the how of growth. It's remarkable how little attention has been actually paid, been paid to what people can do inside their own minds to maximize the impact of the experiences they're having. It's really remarkable. It's a huge omission in the field of psychology and human potential broadly, and it's been something I've been very interested in. And you can see more of my stuff about it. Um, so, I think what helps, bottom line, first, when we're, we're when we've been kind of opened into a new way of being, an insight, you say, could be often a felt sense, like, oh. I'll tell you something personal. Not that I've been that impersonal, but... So I was driving here today, and I was thinking about a wrangle in my extended family system. And this preoccupied me. And I just found myself thinking, and who's the I, right, who's thinking that? I won't, it just the thought arose that if you look at history, two things seem clear. First, people can be shitty. <laughs> Large and small. And what also arose, people can be noble. And then what arose after that was choose nobility. 
you know, choose to be noble. It's kind of like, you know, at that, I started laughing. I was on Sir Francis Drake coming here. I started laughing. It was, such a, it was really useful for me to track that, you know. Shitty, noble. <laughs> Lean in that direction, right? Choose other words if you'd like. So, bingo. That's kind of a moment. What do we do with those moments? We have those moments all the time. Can we help them have impact? Can we receive them? Can we protect them? Can we value them? Can we not do what we so often do, which is to scoot on to the next thing or doubt our realization or doubt the opening that's occurred? Can we, can we do that? You know, and that's going to increase their impact. Can we come back to it? I'm going to write that one down a little later. I mean, I, I deliberately, I, I didn't exploit you, I hope, but I'm helping myself retain this by talking about it. It's helping it sink in, you know, and the feeling of it and the, I'll spare you the gory familial details, but the larger uh, implications of this that are really good for me. Uh, so we help ourselves. The other thing is to appreciate that it's a process and to have patience. People can get caught up in what Chogyam Trungpa called spiritual materialism, chasing attainments of various kinds or comparing my aura to your aura. You know, like a lot of trouble there. And then um, the last thing I would say is, is, I think very much in the spirit of, of what the Buddha taught, is to appreciate that the mind itself, the, I'll say it like this, the mind is imperfectible and it's already perfect. In other words, um, content, trying to perfect the content of the mind is like trying to polish jello. It just, you know, stuff comes up, more things happen, other people come at us, you know, just content, you know, trying to perfect content uh, has a kind of futility to it. Where there is a place for purification and cultivation while also understanding there's kind of an asymptote, a limit to how far we can get with that. And that draws us into. our relationship to the nature of experience. Where we start looking past these realizations or experiences or breakthroughs we're having more and more deeply into the nature of mind. As transient, empty, it's existent, but it's kind of empty of substantiality. It's empty of absolute self-arising existence. It's also ownerless. And when we get that more and more deeply, it's really remarkable what happens. We start kind of opening out. And not opening out into numbness or blankness, but this love starts moving forward. You know, the classic metaphor of the, the jewel and the lotus. The you know, wisdom opens us out and in the midst of that is this love that's remarkable. Okay. All right. Let's meditate. (laughs) So I want to explain something and then we're going to meditate. All right. So, okay. All right. So, a little neuro, a little more geeky, kind of quickly, then we'll meditate and go into lunch. All right? Okay. So, actually, the last thing I said, did you follow what I was trying to talk about? Like, that's, it's, it moves beyond words where you just start more and more like mind is already all right. All right? There's a place for cultivation while also appreciating that 
it's okay already. You know, and what's happening here locally contains the universe altogether. And the the edges start blurring, and you just naturally become less of a jerk. <laughs> Speak from experience. I hope. I hope. Okay, I'll keep going. All right. So don't worry about this. The slide's interesting. Here's the bottom line. When, let's say, we are obsessing or ruminating or intensely mm, problem-solving, we tend to engage circuitry in the midline of the cortex. Also, especially if we're doing a lot of me, myself, and I. Self-referential processing. Midline of the cortex. The blue blobs up there. Okay? On the other hand, if you have people in an MRI, uh, Drop, you encourage them to just drop into present moment awareness, continually letting go, not adding anything to what they're experiencing, including the sense of me or I. Less conceptualizing, not clinging or craving. Then, interestingly, activity in the midline reduces, declines, and networks on the sides of the brain, especially the right side, for right-handed people, get really active. This would be switched probably for left-handed people or many of, uh, or many left-handed people, in part because the right hemisphere for right-handed people is involved with sort of gestalt or holistic processing, not linear sequential processing. So when we're ruminating or when we're problem-solving, we tend to do a lot of sequential processing that's also abstract. The right hemisphere is typically nonverbal, visual-spatial. It's not so abstract as the left hemisphere in the verbal centers. So if you want to operationalize, if you kind of think about it, what's useful is to build up the capability to drop into the lateral mode, to activate these lateral side networks, and to disengage at will, when it's appropriate, from the so-called default mode network in the back of the midline area, kind of spreading out, where we tend to go when we're lost in thought, distracted, and also ruminating or caught up in resentment or regret or self-criticism. And also, it's useful to be able to drop into the lateral mode of more of being if we've been trained a lot by our culture and our school systems to get kind of caught up in doing, 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 doing more centered in the front portions of these midline cortices. What's neat to appreciate is that we can actually train in lateral mode activation through mindfulness training. And research shows that if you take people through a mindfulness training, that they can become more adept at disengaging from midline activation and centering more in present moment being, ongoing being, which is a major support for steadiness of mind and being a choice, right? I think most people in Western culture, certainly myself, uh, have needed to get better at the lateral mode. Some people are very scatterbrained. They're all over the place. They could use a little more executive function, you know? Uh, And there's a place for just kind of being able to daydream pleasantly and space out, but not get lost there, right? Obviously, we need to have balance, but building up that lateral mode capability seems pretty useful. So this is a really interesting line of research. Uh, 
Farb, Norm Farb, one of the main people driving it. And yeah, that's his study that's listed there. Okay? So how to do it. Now we're going to slide into a practice. There are multiple ways to strengthen the lateral networks. And if you stimulate something repeatedly, you strengthen it. Get those neurons firing together, they start wiring together. Really neat. Right? Many ways to disengage the midline and engage the lateral network, which are connected, to use the metaphor again, a little bit like a seesaw, as one uh, activates, it tends to inhibit the other. So as we activate the lateral mode, it kind of calms down that neurotic midline, right, where a lot of crud lives. Multiple ways to do this. I'm going to take you into a meditation that draws on one in particular, a sense of the body as a whole. And also, if you want to keep your eyes open, if you go out to a sense of the volume of the room as a whole, or imagine, you know, the Bay Area, planet Earth, the universe as a whole, then you're going to tend to engage the lateral mode. A panoramic view, bird's eye view, imagining that you're kind of sitting at the top of a mountain, looking out over a vast plain, or you're observing your life from a bird's eye view, or 30,000 foot view. That'll also tend to activate the lateral mode. Being able to train in the lateral mode so that you can drop into it increasingly at will is really useful, especially if you know, you're in certain situations where like holidays with the relatives or you know, weird business meetings, they're all you know, stressing and so forth. I'm in my lateral mode, baby. I don't know. Okay, so you see the methods here? Get some basics. Pretty neat. Neuroscience supports it. So in a moment, we're going to do a meditation that's about one of the, for me, most fundamental of these, being able to sense the body as a whole. If you observe your mind, even when you're mindful of the breath, you'll notice your attention is skittering from um, this sensation to that sensation. Boom, 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 boom. What we're going to explore here is opening the spotlight of attention to cover the whole stage of, the, of awareness, the whole field of awareness, particularly of the body and take everything in it as a whole. Initially, that might seem kind of strange, but we do it all the time visually. You can just realize right now in the visual field, you're aware of the whole field, which has many things in it. And then you, if you want, you can, you can focus on one part of the total field at will, much the same way with sensation. Normally, we're caught up one sensation after another. Here, we're going to explore what it's like to open out to the field of sensation as a whole, particularly related to the sensations of breathing. All right, I'll offer suggestions that are progressive. If I go faster than is working for you, just ignore my voice. Stay with your own process. If you can draw, go all the way out to your body as a whole quickly, do it. I think people who really use their bodies as a whole, yoga teachers, dancers, uh, people who do a lot in nature, say, uh, maybe people who ride a lot on horses might naturally be able to drop into body as a whole more rapidly than I was able to initially when I started doing this. Okay, you want to give it a whirl? Great. Okay, good. And then we'll start moving into lunch pretty soon. So here we go. Okay, this is kind of an experiment. It can be a little frustrating in the beginning. And if the sense of the whole crumbles, just come back to it. Just come back to it again and again. So the way I've learned to do this myself is pick an area maybe in, in the center of your chest, roughly maybe six inches across, where you can recognize that as you breathe, 
there are distinct sensations in this area, or maybe your chest as a whole. There are distinct sensations of breathing there. And you can widen awareness to include them all as a whole. So as you breathe, gradually expand at your own pace to ultimately include your whole body abiding as a whole body breathing. So I'll just offer some suggestions. Seeing what it's like to take your whole chest as the object of attention. can help to relax and sort of receive sensation rather than going out to it. Widening to include the whole chest breathing, including sensations in the back, And inside the chest, the heart beating. Lungs expanding and contracting. Chest rising and falling. Internal sensations, air moving down through the airway, a little cool coming in, a little warm flowing out. Now I'll just suggest other parts of the body to include using fewer words, including the belly,
whole torso from the top of the shoulders all the way down to the pelvic floor. including the neck and head and face. including your shoulders, arms, hands, noticing subtle sensations as you breathe in your arms, as your chest rises and falls, subtle sensations in your head and neck as your chest rises and falls, all included. Also including your hips, noticing sensations there as your torso moves as you breathe.
and gradually including your, your thighs and knees and lower legs and ankles and even feet, including other sensations than breathing, as you gradually open into and rest as a whole body breathing. Staying in the present, simply being awake as a body breathing. If you want, you can include other aspects of experience in the open space of awareness, such as sounds, thoughts, images. So that if you can, you may have flashes of this or maybe a more sustained experience of your consciousness as a whole, mind as a whole, including awareness, as a single whole thing with many parts within it. might help to recognize that there are no edges to awareness, therefore without bound, thus boundless. Edges blurring. 
consciousness as a whole steadily occurring, being the steady occurring of consciousness as a whole, in which its various contents appear and pass away continuously as simply aspects of the whole of mind. Continuing along. You might notice that when you experience mind as a whole, there's actually no suffering there. There might be pain, there might be sadness, but there's no suffering there because the nature of suffering, the structure of suffering is one part of the mind struggling with another part. at issue with another part. Just making the observation here, you may see it for yourself. As you expand to abide, as mind as a whole, suffering falls away.
as we take the last minute or so here, if you want, you can open your eyes if they're not already open and be aware that you can include as well the visual field, which can be quite stimulating, while simply having be, simply having seeing be just one more aspect of a single unified consciousness that includes awareness, as well as sensing and hearing and thinking. No problem in consciousness as a whole. In my experience, we'll have lunch in just a minute. In my experience, um, that practice is a very powerful practice. And it's something that we develop over time. Being able to first tune into the body as a whole and then eventually just kind of rest as consciousness as a whole. So both... uh, quite powerful and and you may have found that you could drop into it or you may have found some difficulty with it but it's, uh, but it's a really powerful thing okay. um, I'd like to mention something before you take a before we go for lunch so if you'll bear with me for two three minutes here um, <clears throat> as the Buddha moved through his travels it was said that routinely when he came to a new place the first thing he taught was about generosity. And it goes back to that uh, quotation I offered early on that um, we should train ourselves in doing good that lasts and brings happiness. Cultivate generosity, it continues. Cultivate generosity, the life of peace and a mind of boundless love. So he talked a lot about generosity. Uh, generosity as practice as inherently involving releasing the clench of the self. And uh, it's, it makes us happy. It gladdens the heart to be generous when it's uh, within bounds, when it's within range of what is comfortable for a person. And, of course, it supports others, in, and the, which then can feed back to us in addition to the ways it's helpful for others. One of the uh, wonderful forms of generosity that I've been involved with since the very start has been to be uh, what's called a steward, uh, which is a kind of supporter or enabler of Spirit Rock itself. Spirit Rock here uh, is primarily supported through donation. 
including the donation that enabled this land to be purchased uh, 20 plus years ago. I was on the board at Spirit Rock for nine years and we have term limits here, so I termed off, but anyway. Uh, and I really invite you to think about joining me as a regular steward of Spirit Rock. We have a stewardship program here, a stewardship circle. I think uh, for $25 a month, uh, there's a lot of good benefits that come with that, uh, you know, but uh, we obviously have a place in being generous for its own sake. But if you've been touched by this land, or there are ways in which I even think it might be tax deductible, um, uh, you want to be, you know, get involved in it's kind of a regular monthly giving, which of course you can end at any time you want. Um, I hope you'll join me in doing that. Um, and uh, to do what gladdens your heart, what gives you a feeling. Uh, Spirit Rock is one of the leading uh, meditation centers and also it's been in the forefront of innovation, including with regard to diversity and different programs. As Romy said earlier, there are teens uh, practicing upstairs. Spirit Rock has really developed a family program. Uh, the land itself is a wonderful refuge. Uh, there are many teachings it offers, including online or through other means, through its newsletter. So anyway, if, you, if you're moved, if you're moved to support this institution, uh, this teaching center, which I believe will be here long after I'm not, uh, I hope you'll join me. And there's a volunteer out there sitting at a table who will happily take your sign-up information if you're so moved. Um, I actually think that I was among the very first, I was in the first month of this program going back to 1997, if not even sooner, before they had records here of any real kind. And uh, anyway, it just really makes me happy. Every time I see that little charge, I go, oh good, makes me happy. That's how generosity should feel, oh good. So anyway, I invite you to do that. I also invite you to have lunch. Come on back at 10 minutes after 2 in an hour, okay? 10 past 2. It's okay to keep practicing meanwhile, including enjoying. Come back, a lot of cool stuff after lunch. A lot of good karma after lunch. See you then. 10 past 2. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.